morning. As Jesse said, we're reading um, Psalm chapter 19, which can be found on page 456 of the Church Bibles. Um, so Psalm chapter 19, page 456. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heaven, and its circuits to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great, great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you very much, Gregor. And uh, thank you, Jesse and musicians um, for leading us. Um, so we're in Psalm 19. This, over the start of the holiday period, uh, we're going to look at two psalms, two psalms really which teach us how to respond to God's word. Uh, psalm 19 and then uh, next week, Psalm 119, although not all of it, because it's really long, just the first two um, uh, parts of it. Two things that will help us as we go through. One, on the back of the service sheet, this may or may not be helpful, but there's just an outline of the sermon that will show you where we're going. Uh, but what will definitely be helpful is to have Psalm 19 open uh, in front of you uh, so you can see it as we go through. But let's pray as uh, we come to God's words. Lord God, our, our Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us. And we thank you particularly that you have spoken to us through your word. Lord, we pray this morning, therefore, that we would have ears that will listen, hearts that will respond rightly, and Lord, that you might change us for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, how do we know anything? How do we know anything? Well, some things may be by self-discovery, and we might figure some stuff out on our own, but most of, most of us know anything at all because somebody taught us. Somebody spoke to us, they taught us, they instructed us. And now we pass on our knowledge to others in the same way. We teach, we instruct, we, we speak. And whether that's a, um, a parent speaking to their children, teaching them how to walk or how to to eat or how to behave, and they teach that, or a primary school teacher, they cover all the topics, don't you? And secondary school teachers uh, focusing on maths or English or French or whatever. We know anything because we're taught. It's 
someone teaches us. And then once we're taught, once we understand the lesson, well, we need to respond rightly to it. Teaching should bring about change. So the child needs to respond to their parents telling them to use a knife and fork and not just sort of chuck their veg on the floor or stuff it in their face with their hand. Um, They need to start picking up the correct tools and using them properly. And if you're a parent, you know, that's a very long and painful uh, lesson to teach and you know that some don't ever learn it. But likewise, a math student or a French student, once they're taught, uh, they need to respond. They need to practice, say, their algebra or their quadratic equations. Well, I can only remember what that's called. I can't remember exa- anything about it other than, uh, than that. So I've not learnt my lesson there. But if you want to pass the exam, you've got to revise what you've been taught, don't you? And if you've got bad habits, bad practices that produce the wrong answers, well, you need to change. You need to listen to the teaching and change. Psalm 19, this psalm of David, says that the reason we know anything at all about God is because God speaks. God speaks. He speaks through his creation, revealing his glory, and he speaks through his word, revealing his good expectations for us. God speaks. He's teaching us through his creation and his word. He's teaching us about himself and about what he wants from us as human beings. And we're going to see that that lesson, learning that lesson, produces a particular response in the heart of a believer, a change in us. That's the message of this psalm. That's what's laid out for you on the handouts. So first of all, verse 1 to 6, God's creation speaks and reveals his glory. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a sun, uh, set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens, that's not heaven, the place where God dwells, but the heavens, the skies, the universe... The heavens declare God's glory. Now, my son uh, Isaac has fallen in love with space. So he's reading books on space. He's learned uh, the names of all the planets. He knows that Pluto isn't a planet anymore. And he's got this kind of Rubik's Cube kind of thing. I don't know if you can see that, um, which reveals different uh, kind of parts of the universe on it. And we'll show you what all the different things look like. And he's got facts, and he's even got jokes about space, um, although one of them is far too rude to be repeated, so please don't ask him um, about that. Now, recently he had his 10th birthday, and we got him a telescope. The problem is his birthday's in May, and it doesn't get dark till like 11 o'clock, so he hasn't used it very much. But we did stay up late one night, and as it was getting dark, um, we set it up in the back garden, and this is what we saw. There you go. 
Now you can, it's got a little attachment you can clip your phone to so you can take a picture through, uh, through the image. Now imagine that you're a 10-year-old boy. What's your reaction to seeing the moon up close? It's wow. And actually, that's the reaction of a 40-year-old man as well. <laughs> and that was just our first go. We started with the moon. But there's much more to see, isn't there? There's the stars, the planets, the galaxies. Everything has its place. And as we see it, it produces in us this sense of awe and wonder, this wow. The heavens in all their array, they have a kind of glory, don't they? The Apostle Paul says that there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. The heavens are glorious, that's true. But the author of this song, this psalm, David, he wants us to realise that the glory of the heavens speaks, ultimately speaks not about their own glory, so that we focus on them, but on the greater glory of the one who made them. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And this sermon of the skies is repeated day after day, verse 2, night after night. We hear the voice of the heavens declaring God's glory. It's not an audible voice, verse 3 makes that clear. But nonetheless, everybody hears it, even if we try and ignore it. And it is everyone who hears. Just look at verse 4. Their voice, the heaven's voice, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This speech, this teaching that the heavens give is one that's heard in Morningside to Melbourne, Brunsfield to Beijing, north, south, east and west. It's a message declared in a language that everybody can understand. Now, why the the heavens? Why does he choose the heavens? Well, it's not that only the heavens declare God's glory. The rest of creation declares it too. So a mountain, a river, a tree, a lion or a bear. But those things are all localised to a particular place and people who've seen it. So I've never been to the Jordan River. I've never seen that. I've never walked along the shores of Galilee. I've never been up Mount Zion or been through the forests of Lebanon. David has done all those things. He's seen all those things. Uh, but I haven't, and neither have most of humanity. But everyone, every person on the planet can look up to the heavens and see the, see the skies. Their speech is a language that we can all understand. David picks an example to illustrate his points in the uh, second part of verse 4 um, to verse 6. And he picks not the moon, um, but the sun. Now, I know we're in Scotland, but even here, and we see the sun sometimes. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
Now, he's not talking scientifically here, but poetically. God has set the sun in the sky as a display of his glory. The sun joyfully rises in the morning like a, like a young man emerging from his bedroom on the morning of his wedding. He's dressed in his finest clothes. And then with the swiftness of a great warrior chasing down his enemies, he travels across the sky from one end in the east all the way through to the west. And as the sun makes its journey, it exudes this astonishing power, doesn't it? This heat. Every living thing feels it. The searching heat of the sun. See, so the sun speaks to us, to all humanity, and it says, do you see my glory? That is nothing compared to the glory of the one who made me. Now, in ancient cultures, of course, they often worshipped the sun and the, and the moon and the stars. They thought they were sources of life and meaning, as a creator of sorts. And many modern people, too, in our Western culture, we would recognise that the skies are glorious and that the universe has this kind of majestic power, a, a glory uh, in itself, uh, being the source of all life. And you speak of it in terms of uh, awe and wonder as if it's a, a sacred thing. But that, of course, is where it would stop. They would say that material is all there is, that there's nothing before or behind or above the universe, above the heavens. There's no message, certainly, that the heavens have to tell us about God. Now, why won't people make that step, that extra step? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us this answer in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is what he says. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Pick that up. So by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. In other words, every human being has heard the truth of the skies. They've heard the heavens declaring God's glory. There's no excuse for them. But that what they do is they willfully suppress this knowledge. It's like um, pressing the mute button over the adverts. You know, we mute the heavenly chorus because we don't want to hear what it says. We push it down in our hearts because to admit that there is a God and that he exists and that he's glorious, well, that would mean we would have to bow the knee to him. Human beings suppress this knowledge. They put their fingers in their ears because they want to live as they please. But what does David say? He would say, look up to the heavens. Unmute the song of the skies. Listen to creation's voice. God is speaking to humanity through the glorious skies and he is proclaiming 
that he exists and that he is glorious. Creation speaks and reveals God's glory. That's the first uh, part of our psalm. Let's turn to the second part. Uh, This is verse 7 to 11. God's word speaks and reveals his expectations. Let's read it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, what do you notice? Well, the first thing I guess that you notice is the multiple and and various references to God's word, the law, testimonies, precepts, commandments, rules. I think these are kind of overlapping terms. They're sort of different angles on the same thing. God's spoken word, which has been written down um, for us. David would have had access to at least the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, So this section is all about the revelation of God's word. It's still God speaking to us, but no longer in creation. This time he's speaking in the scriptures. But I'd like us to, we'll think a bit more about that, but I'd like us first of all to notice another thing in these verses. See, in the previous section, God was simply called God, and only once in verse 1. Heavens declare the glory of God. But here in this second section, he is called by his personal name, Yahweh, the Lord, in each phrase and in every verse. And this tells us something. It tells us that there is a limit to what the creation can teach us about God. The heavens can reveal that there is a God and declare his glory. We can know that at least. But if we want to know God's nature his character, who he is, well then we need him to reveal that to us through his word. That's what he does. Through the scriptures, we find out that he is the Lord. He is a personal God who wants to know us and wants us to know him. Through the things that he says about himself in the scriptures, we find out things that we could find out no other way. So, for example, how do we know that God is loving How do we know that he loves the people that he's made? How do we know that his love is so great that he won't immediately abandon us when we sin against him? How do we know that? Well, we don't know that by looking at the sun, do we? We we can't tell that from looking at Orion or the plough or any other constellation. They won't tell us that. The only reason that we know that God is loving is because he's revealed it to us in his words. Back in Exodus chapter 34, God reveals his glory to Moses. And he does so by speaking to him. It's Exodus 34 verse 5. We're told that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, spoke to him. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, his character is revealed through his word. He has spoken and he has told us that he is this God, he is the Lord who loves his people even when we sin against him. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, his, his character is revealed through his word. He's spoken and he's told us who he is, that he is the Lord God who loves his people. So we learn here that in Psalm 19, the character of God's revealed through the scriptures. But here's another thing, and I think this is the major focus of these verses. David knew that God's word reveals to human beings God's expectations from us, what God wants from us, what he calls in verse 7, the law of the Lord. His word teaches how we should live if we are to please him. And David recognises that these instructions are good. For him, these are no weight around his neck. They're not draconian rules that will inhibit his freedom. Now, he rejoices in them. He, he knows that they're good for him. Just look at verse 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. I remember once a friend um, very kindly lent us their house um, for a holiday. It was down in, in Cambridge um, for a week. So Joe and I and the kids, we rocked up to the house, to the front door, and in we went. And what we found was a variety of post-it notes and a piece of paper with lots of information on it. And they were instructions, you know, how to operate the dishwasher, um, when and how to put the bins out, uh, where the good takeaways were, uh, how to use the bikes that they'd left us, how to get to church, and so on, and so on. Now, we didn't think, oh no, we're on holiday, we're meant to be free to do what we want to do, and they're ruining it for us. No, we thought, wow, this is gold. How sweet of them to be so thoughtful. See, they were the owners of the house. They knew far better than us how things worked. They knew that without instruction, we'd find it hard to function properly there. Their instructions, far from binding us, actually made us free, free to enjoy their world, at least for a week. The believer discovers a similar thing as they listen to God's expectations in his words. David says God's word is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, righteous. He's glad of it because look at the effect in his life. Verse 7, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. Verse 8, it brings joy to the heart and light to the eyes. Verse 9, it trains us how to relate properly to God, to rightly fear him in his holiness. God's word, which teaches us God's expectations for how we're to live in this world, 
It's not a binding weight for the believer, somehow restricting our joy. It actually makes us flourish. And so we desire to know and live by God's word more than we desire gold. Even the 24 carat stuff. We're hungry for the scriptures. And in them we find something sweeter than the sweetest thing. Sweeter than honey dripping off the honeycomb. And keeping God's word, there is great reward. That's the point of this central section of verses. God's word speaks, it reveals himself and his expectations for us. But then just look at the first part of verse 11, just the end of this section. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Now it is, might just pick up at that phrase. Just as we understood in the opening verses that, that though we hear of God's glory in creation, we often shut our ears to it, we suppress the truth. At the end of this second section, we begin to understand that in a similar way, though we hear God's good expectations for us through his words, we often shut our ears to that as well and we disobey. And that's what leads David into his final section, verse 12 to 14. This is his response. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's very different, isn't it, this last section? We hear David's response to what he's learned. David, God's servant, he speaks, and what he says is the response of any believer when we learn of God's expectations for us. There is this dawning reality that we fall short of God's standards. And therefore, we offer a plea for help. First then, the dawning reality of falling short of God's standards. Um, If you took a torch, like a halogen torch, a really bright torch, and you shone it under your sofa at home, well, you'd suddenly see all the cobwebs and the dust and the dirt and the bits of Lego and, and stuff like that. You can try it when you get home. Now, you may have lived your life completely oblivious to that knowledge, completely oblivious to, to all of that under there. What's more likely is that you've seen it at one point when you were looking for something else, and then you chose to ignore it. But the torch reveals the real mess that you've been living in all the time. God's law works like that. It's a, a blazing torch, and it shines in the dark recesses of our hearts. And here's what it shows, verse 12, that we are full of errors, that we have hidden faults. Verse 13, that we are prone to presumptuous, arrogant sins, that we're given over to sin's dominion. 
as we come under the sound of God's commands, we, we realize that we're full of great transgression. And verse 14, that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts fall way short of his expectations. See, though we know that God's word is good and we desire to follow it, we also realize that we haven't and that we can't. Now, when God's word shines a light on the true condition of our hearts, well, we can treat it just like we treat the sofa. We can ignore it. We can live as if it's not true. We're very good at suppressing the truth. But that's not how David responds, is it? When he comes to this realisation, he pleads with God for help. That's the response. That's the right response. He makes three pleas to God, one in each of verse 12, 13 and 14. So plea number one, verse 12, declare me innocent, even from the sins I can't see. Plea number two, verse 13, hold me back from my sin, break sin's dominion over me. And plea number three, verse 14, clean up my lips and my heart. Now notice who he makes these pleas to. It's not to himself, as if it's sort of self-improvement that he needs, a just-try-harder kind of thing to say. Now he makes the pleas to the Lord, whom he calls at the end, my rock and my redeemer. He goes to the one he can trust, his rock. He goes to the one who can redeem him, who can pay the price for his sins. So here's where our psalm closes. When we hear God speaking of his glory in the heavens, when we hear God speaking of his holiness in the scriptures and his good expectations for us, the only response we can have is to fall on our knees and plead with him. To cry, declare me innocent, even from the sins I can't see. Hold me back from my sin. Break sin's dominion over me. Clean up my lips and my heart. I can't do these things, Lord. I need you, my rock and my redeemer. And here's the good news. That prayer of faith is answered in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Through faith in Christ's death on the cross, he pays the price for our sins, redeeming us, setting us free from sin and death and the judgment of God by dying in our place. Through Christ, then, we are justified. We are declared innocent from all our sins, even the hidden ones. Through Christ, sin's tyranny over us, its dominion, over us is broken and through Christ we are cleaned up we are sanctified the words of our lips and the deepest darkest thoughts of our hearts are changed and we become acceptable in God's sight the heavens declare the glory of God the word of God reveals his expectations from us But as we listen, we realise just how far short of God's glory we have fallen. 
And so let's respond with a plea. Redeem us, O Lord. A plea which is answered through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Help us to listen to your voice. Help us to wonder and glory, uh, wonder at your glory. Help us to love your word, love your law. And help us to respond with repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen.